This episode is sponsored by Unfucking Pros, Glenn, Corey S., and August M. So as you know, we recently added membership tiers at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR to help support the show. So thank you to everyone who signed up for one of our tiers and to everyone who continues to support UNFTR. Adding to the list of unfuckers, we have bottle fuckers from Best of the Left and pitch fuckers from Pitchfork Economics. Welcome to the friends of our friends out there in the Potterverse. And of course, welcome back to unfuckers, subfuckers, unkanuckers, eurofuckers, and down underfuckers. Love and power to Nettie out there in the corner of College and Appleton and Outagami. Fuck Milton Freeman and happy birthday, Occupy. <laughs> so our neighbors up north had quite a monumental election this past week. Everything changed in Canada. It was seismic. Nothing will ever be the same. I'm just kidding. One thing that did happen was that I misread Aaron O'Toole's name in the last episode and called him Eric. But fuck him. He lost anyway. Thank you, CJ, for the catch and for not holding it against me. It's one of the benefits of being an American, you know. Canadians know that we're stupid, so they generally give us a pass on things like this. But yeah, Pretty JT called a surprise election in August, thinking the Liberals would pick up some seats and lead with a clear mandate going forward. He was banking on Canadians feeling as though Liberals handled COVID effectively and was further hoping he could shift the narrative away from the scandals that have plagued the Trudeau administration. Really just hoping to manufacture a wave of enthusiasm and then... The U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and it brought up the negative feelings about Canada's role there, a second wave of coronavirus took hold, and Trudeau's messaging felt pretty out of step with the general dis-ease in the country. So the Conservatives had a chance to upend things a bit, with the NDP kind of faltering nationally with diluted messaging, but in the end, O'Toole didn't create a compelling case to change the direction of the country, and parliamentary seats pretty much landed where they were before it started. Much ado about nothing. Although there was some progress made in terms of indigenous candidates grabbing a couple of seats and otherwise performing pretty well. That being said, as I've mentioned before on this show, never assume anything about First Nations or indigenous issues. There are some who believe that taking positions in the colonial occupier government and pushing towards assimilation is exactly the wrong tactic. God, I love this shit. So we had a range of feedback on the Climate Industrial Complex episode that we'll address in show notes today, and hopefully you enjoyed my conversation this week with Chief Harry Wallace and his niece Amy, the head roaster of our organic free trade native roasted coffee. They are such good people, and this partnership means the world to us. So thank you to those who checked out the episode and supported the show with a wave of coffee purchases. We're so incredibly grateful for this outpouring of support on both buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR and on UNFTR.com. So, unfuckers, you have made every day since we launched this show pure joy. We're more committed than ever to really bring it home each week and to building this community together. And one last thing. And I want to be really careful about this so as not to minimize a tragedy. The nation has been transfixed by the story of a young woman named Gabby Petito. You know the story. Gabby's body was found and the coroner has pronounced her death a homicide. And as of this recording, her fiancé, who is the person of interest, remains missing. There is nothing good about this story. It is horrifying and tragic. The only positive development is that it has highlighted the inconsistency in our media landscape when it comes to the coverage of missing women. The MMIW movement, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, started in Canada and has been adopted in the United States to draw attention to the terrifying fact that Indigenous women are far more likely to go missing or be murdered than any other ethnic group in North America. 
There are quite literally thousands of Native women in the U.S. and Canada who have tragically fallen into this category in just the past decade alone. So to the extent that we can make sense of what happened to Gabby and find meaning in this moment, I truly hope that our obsession begins to extend beyond this awful moment to honor murdered Native women, find those who have gone missing, and regard every woman's life as precious. Now, today's episode is about language. UNFTR, as you know, is predominantly a show about politics and socioeconomics. The bulk of our catalog tracks with this because it's my personal frame of reference, the lens through which I can best make sense of the world. But it's also about building a common language around important subjects so we're all moving in the same direction as we grow and learn. I always call this getting level set. And so sometimes we level set on topics that are adjacent but highly correlated to the themes that we tease out and the building blocks that we lay. Our work on indigenous issues, the Julian Assange episode, examining our neighbors like Canada and Cuba, and even the work that we've done on the military-industrial complex, I consider them to be adjacent, but extremely important to our understanding of ourselves and our politics. For example, in the aforementioned election up north, one bright spot was the election of Blake Desjardins in Edmonton. Blake is Métis and identifies as Two-Spirit, the 2S in Canada's LGBTQ2S plus community, and one of six officials who openly identify in this community. What is Two-Spirit, you might ask? Well, the executive director of the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society says, quote, that Two-Spirit transcends that boundary by the binary of female-male, therefore restoring the gender fluidity amongst our people, end quote. So there are so many avenues to traverse and acronyms to unpack in today's episode and a great many intersections from our previous episodes that make this the perfect time to discuss the language of inclusiveness, the importance of representation, and where we are in the long journey from heteronormative behaviors and policy. And since you've got the hot hand in the election, Prime Minister, why don't you kick us off? LGDP, uh, LGT, LBG, LGBTQ two plus uh never mind i'll take it from here this is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass but instead of a revolution he started a podcast just what the world needs another basic white guy who As with our Culture Cancel episode, one of the first important markers is to say that like indigenous peoples, the LGBTQIA community is not a monolith. There are no absolutes in this episode. In fact, that's almost the point. Breaking away from heteronormative language and concepts of absolutes is essential to building a new framework of understanding of the LGBTQIA issues. The other important marker is language. We talk a lot about language because it's the construct of understanding that our society is built upon. It's the essence of the pragmatist movement, the idea that existence is truth, but what is known and believed is developed through shared language and therefore shouldn't always be trusted. So let's stay there for a moment. Before we get to the political and socioeconomic discussion of rights and agency, let's stay on language. At times in this episode, I'll refer to the LGBTQIA community as either LGBTQ or simply as, quote, the community. Plus, we're going to go through some important definitions, so the acronym soup might be a little much at times. For definition purposes, 
The longer acronym stands for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer or Questioning, Intersexual, Asexual. And the plus is for those who might identify beyond what's included in the traditional acronym. Intersex and asexual, the more recent additions to the lexicon, meaning those born without definitive anatomy or chromosomes of a defined gender, and those who experience sexual feelings on a spectrum, respectively. These definitions, the accepted acronyms in the advocacy community, and our understanding of gender identity and expression, and biological sex and sexual orientation, are evolving, and beautifully so. Oh, it's beautiful. Then there's the derisive language that has, for centuries, defined the LGBTQ community, such as deviant, sodomist, perverted, pathological. There are countless references to same-sex behavior throughout history from Plato forward that cast the community in this negative light. Then there's the language of the definitions themselves, which is broad and ever-changing. The word queer, for example, has a rich history of being both celebratory and derisive. There are many in the community that reject the rehabilitation of this word to identify same-sex or non-heteronormative lifestyles, and then there are others who use it as the blanket term for the larger community. And what's cool about this moment in time is that we're literally working through these concepts in real time. It's a lot like the discussions about how to refer to non-white communities. And the first thing to know is that the term non-white is largely rejected because it still puts white people at the center of it. Minority is also a term that we're moving away from because it carries the stigma of being lesser than. Even with a modifier like ethnic minority, person of color, POC, or black indigenous person of color, BIPOC, Hispanic, Latino, or Latinx, is it okay to say black when referencing a black community? What happened to African American? Well, not all black people are from African descent. Right, but it feels weird to just call someone black. For you, that's your problem. Indeed it is, and that's the point. The first takeaway before we even get to the heart of the subject is that this isn't our or my discussion to have. It's my job to listen in on. This is a process, and frankly, it's an incredible process. Because historically marginalized communities are awakening to the reality that they can identify themselves, reclaim their own histories and cultures, and stop defining themselves against the racialized or ethnic standards of whiteness, and gender norms. And this is actually a really big shift and it's crucial to understand and open our minds to the larger issues of identity at play. Breaking from any cultural or historical norms is super messy, but it's necessary to evolve and it starts with getting the language right. So for my LGBTQ listeners or those in allyship, know that I'm not attempting to straight-splain here as much as I'm trying to interpret and contextualize issues as additive aspects of our shared unfucking language. So let's talk a little further about the language surrounding the evolution in the LGBTQ community. Years ago, I did work with an advocacy group that was founded decades ago as GLBT, Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender, in that order. And at the time, it was extremely progressive and forward-thinking. And I knew them when they changed their name to the LGBT Network to remove any sense of historical hierarchy for gay males and gay white males specifically. That's actually one of the more fascinating developments inside the community. There isn't always consensus, but there's always a focus on fostering deeper understanding of ourselves and one another. There are marginalized communities within larger marginalized communities, each of which is on a difficult and different path. And that walk is far from over, as we'll discuss. 
I guess the entry point for this idea is that the legacy of the white male patriarchy that exists in all corners of our society also exists in the LGBTQ community as well. The generally accepted mythology is that the entire movement owes itself to brave gay white men who took on the establishment and the revolutionary moment enshrined in history is the Stonewall Riots. In some ways, I think it's okay to leave this perception of the importance of this event partly intact, but like most historical events, this interpretation is a mixture of mythology, hyperbole, and sentiment. The gay rights movement was born in 1969 at a beloved gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall Riot began when a drag queen, bereft by the death of Judy Garland, threw a brick at a police officer. The riot culminated in a Rockettes-style kick line of drag queens facing down tactical police in riot gear. It's a beautiful story, but it's not exactly true. That's a clip from a New York Times video piece that discusses the legacy of Stonewall. We'll link it in show notes, but the subjects talk about everything from stereotypes about gay people loving Judy Garland, how Stonewall wasn't necessarily a beloved establishment, and it doesn't matter who threw the first brick and other legends. One cool spoiler is that there were indeed kick lines in the street that night as police looked on, which is awesome. Testimony from those who were actually there that night, from police to attendees, was that it wasn't a riot, though that's how it was characterized. What it was was a triumphant protest that should be celebrated. And what was triumphant about this moment is that the participants did push back against selective and targeted enforcement of liquor laws and overcapacity, a tactic often used by police to target LGBTQ gatherings. It was a public statement of no more. But like most reflections, we have a tendency to romanticize certain events and attribute entire movements to specific moments like these when they're actually the culmination of efforts, a tipping point rather than a starting point. And so in this way, I think it's good to honor the memory of Stonewall, but also acknowledge that people were doing the work and fighting against systemic oppression prior to Stonewall. I bring this up because part of the legacy of the LGBTQ movement that needs to be explored more carefully is the concept of narrative control. I'm going to introduce a couple of resources for book love today, starting with a book titled Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States by Joey Mogul, Andrea Ritchie, and Kay Whitlock. The book is 10 years old now, and it's interesting to see how the language has evolved even over the past decade, but the authors do a really competent job of demonstrating how the community has faced systemic oppression and injustice through various societal and structural levers. And the first point I want to draw from the book relates to our understanding of the evolution of the movement from a gay white male perspective. Quote, since the late 1970s, the growing constellation of national nonprofit LGBT advocacy organizations, as well as many of their state and local counterparts, have been dominated by white middle class leadership and membership and have also relied heavily on the financial support of affluent white gays. End quote. So what's important about this is that the movement in this country is young. In our minds and through our teachings, it started with the rights of white gay men, and that's why Stonewall is such an important part of our understanding and our education. But I liken it to how Martin Luther King Jr.'s advocacy is taught to us through the I Have a Dream speech, while ignoring the radical growth of his movement towards the end of his life or the countless events that preceded it that made the March on Washington even possible. Another great read is The Deviant's War, written by Eric Cervini in 2020, and we'll put it in our store at bookshop.org. Now, in it, Cervini charts the community resistance path in the United States through the historical biographical narrative of Dr. Frank Kameny, a Harvard-educated astrologer whose experience in the criminal justice system is an allegory for the experience of the community at large. 
It's an excellent read and a brilliant piece of history told in narrative form, so check it out if you haven't had the chance. I found The Deviant's War a great companion piece to contextualize the experience of community members within the criminal justice system. See, the laws in the United States have been frustratingly resistant to updating and change. For example, a shocking number of states maintained archaic anti-sodomy laws in the books through the 2000s before the Supreme Court finally struck down sodomy statutes in Lawrence v. Texas. Beyond the actual regressive and punitive laws against non-heteronormative behavior, there's a cultural and societal view of the community that is constantly revealed in the criminal justice system as well. The idea that someone is psychologically damaged because they live in a way that challenges heteronormative behavior is pervasive in our culture, our policing, and our legal system. The real psychological damage, of course, comes from suppressing this part of ourselves. Community members swept up in the criminal justice system are more likely to be subjected to psychological evaluations as a result of this deeply rooted view of so-called queer behavior and more likely to be charged and convicted of a crime based solely upon our deep-seated distrust of LGBTQ people. As the Queer and Justice authors pointed out, quote, the prosecutor's task is greatly facilitated when the accused belongs to a class of people stigmatized as abnormal, violent, sexually degenerate, and pathological, end quote. Now, there are literally thousands of examples of police and prosecutors targeting LGBTQ communities, engaging in otherwise normal behavior, and then attempting to criminalize it. Members are often confronted with an unsympathetic justice system that places them in far greater harm than hetero community members once they're swept up in the system. Again, from Queer Injustice, quote, the first national survey of violence in the penal system conducted by the BJS in 2003 found that sexual orientation was the single greatest determinant of sexual abuse in prisons, with 18.5% of homosexual inmates reporting that they were sexually assaulted, compared to just 2.7% of heterosexual prisoners, end quote. A decade passed, and the numbers haven't improved all that much. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, quote, a 2015 study of nearly 28,000 transgender adults showed patterns of frequent harassment, profiling, and abuse by law enforcement officers and high rates of incarceration. Just in the past year, 2% of respondents had been incarcerated, more than twice the rate in the general population. The incarceration rate was several times higher among transgender people of color and low-income respondents. For example, nearly 1 in 10 black transgender women were incarcerated in the previous year, approximately 10 times the rate in the general population. Similarly, 1 in 6 respondents in the 2008 to 2009 National Transgender Discrimination Survey had been incarcerated at any point during their lives, with the rate skyrocketing to 47% among black transgender people. End quote. Now, as difficult as this might be to hear, it turns out that former First Lady Melania Trump's efforts to stem the tide of bullying in this country with her Be Best campaign did not, in fact, halt the scourge of bullying. So, we're forced to carry on. Now, the gross insensitivity to the community can be found in our justice system, the carceral sphere, legislation, and politics, to be sure. Beyond these structural frameworks, though, there's a cultural component that has undoubtedly contributed to the lack of progress made on these fronts. From literature to Hollywood, there's a very casual reinforcement of heteronormative behavior through the reproach of non-heteronormative behavior. You know how I know that you're gay? Oh. You like the movie Made in Manhattan? 
You know I know you're gay? How? I saw you make a spinach dip in a loaf of sourdough bread once. Oh my god! Einhorn is a man! God. Thor's my hero. Thor's a homo. Hope you brought your Costco card, because you're about to get dick in bulk. What is, this is so dark. It's why authentic representation of historically marginalized groups in the media is so critical. It sounds ridiculous to even say it when you back up just a bit, but it really is important to, quote, normalize trans people on television, in literature, and in the movies. And I say it's ridiculous because, of course, this implies that trans folk are somehow abnormal, but that is the point. We cannot understand what we cannot see, and we have to see it often for it not to be strange. You have to train your untrained eye in order to rewire your brain. Take, for example, a show that I became obsessed with on Netflix. It's called Sense8 from the Wachowski sisters. For my money, some of the most creative and important television ever made. For a long time, I was afraid to be who I am because I was taught by my parents that there's something wrong with someone like me. Something offensive, something you would avoid, maybe even pity. Something that you could never love. That's trans actor Jamie Clayton in the show's now infamous Pride speech. I'll be completely honest here on fuckers. There were times in the show where I was like, holy shit, how did this get made? What was important about this and other shows that have been developed over the past decade is the honest representation of trans people specifically. See, we've been conditioned to see gay and lesbian characters, although many of them have been gross exaggerations for comedic purposes. But TV and Hollywood have made a concerted effort to more authentically portray marginalized groups. But the battle for trans rights and acceptance, as much as I hate to even use that word, is current and real. I'm, I'm talking about the word acceptance, and I place acceptance in the same category as tolerance, which is something that we have to move past. But admittedly, it's part of the process. You can't just have progress and equity without passing through the difficult stage of acceptance. And it's not just the white male patriarchy that is frustrating progress in the trans movement. This is J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, of course, who sparked outrage last weekend with a series of controversial tweets about trans women. So this controversy is more than a year old, but it was an important point in the trans movement because Rowling claimed her feelings came from her experience as a feminist, or as many refer to her, a TERF, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. And she's not alone. This is a sentiment that persists among feminists in certain circles of the gay and lesbian community and, of course, among heterosexuals. Now hold on the gay and lesbian feelings and fuck the heteros for a second. The idea among some feminist leaders is that men are essentially stealing power from women by asserting their rights to transition. It's this kind of stance that makes this so difficult as a cisgender white male to even reflect upon. But at the risk of pissing someone or everyone off, I have to back the trans perspective here. See, there are very distinct aspects of this issue that are largely misunderstood, and apologies to the community, because I know these are the basic table stakes, as we might say, but it's a good time to quickly review sex and gender. 99? Gender expression is how you express yourself to the world, which, as the Human Rights Campaign so perfectly puts it, quote, may or may not conform to socially defined behaviors and characteristics typically associated with being either masculine or feminine, end quote. Biological sex refers to the stuff that you're born with, organs, chromosomes, the physical nature of being, as opposed to sexual orientation, which is your emotional, romantic, or sexual attraction to other people. 
Again, we're only scratching the surface as this is a very nuanced conversation with lots of language, interpretations, and personal attachment to these terms. Perfect. Thank you, 99. Now, here's the hard part for many of us to wrap our heads around. Each of these, identity, expression, biology, sexual orientation, each exists along a spectrum. In a world that requires absolutes, that views everything in black and white and binary terms, this is a hard concept to digest. See, we're afraid of what we don't know, terrified of what we don't understand. And that's the essence of our mantra, to meet people where they are. And on that note, it's probably the perfect time to speak to the origin of this concept, at least on this show. See, when I was working with the LGBTQ advocacy organization, I expressed frustration with some of the blowback that we were receiving in working together. It was sort of foreign territory for me personally, and I asked the head of the organization how he was able to deal with the continuing barrage of homophobic slurs and insensitivity, and he patiently explained to me that he didn't have the luxury of pushing an agenda forward blindly and that he had to, quote, meet people where they are no matter how long it takes. See, we're all at different stages of this journey, and he knew that he was battling dire consequences, that the people he advocated for were literally placed in life-or-death situations due to their lifestyles, beliefs, and natural tendencies. Those who do exist on the rainbow spectrum in opposition to the black and white rules of society do so at great risk. And that's why the language matters. I talked about this up top and how the essence of the pragmatist is that life is truth, but language is how we express this truth. It's the tie that binds us together as a society. And this week, we released that conversation with Harry Wallace, chief of the Uncachog people, who spoke about the importance of language reclamation because it was what connects his people to their history and their culture. Language matters, and it's why we did this episode. What seems elemental to many of us is still a giant leap for so many more of us. So it's important that we have this discussion, even if we don't get it 100% right. And as we've shown, even within the community itself, there's a continuing evolution of thought and language. And as unfuckers, it's important that we walk the path together in allyship and partnership. And for those in the LGBTQ community, it's important to extend grace to those of us who are still learning and struggling to keep up. None of us will get it right all of the time, but it's essential that we try. This moment is especially important to the transgender community because in many ways, it has the hardest road ahead. But you might rightly ask, why is this part of the UNFTR journey? How does it correlate to the topics we cover and our stated mission of examining the nation through a socioeconomic lens? It's a fair question and a good point for us to conclude this episode on. The intersectionality is tangible and evident. In past shows, we've explored mass incarceration. And today we showed how LGBTQ and trans people specifically experience even greater hardship and risk when they're swept up in the criminal justice system. We've explored our culture of militarism, and the Trump administration attempted to ban trans people from military service. We discuss economics at length on this show, and yet the myth that gays and lesbians live lavish lifestyles is belied by the statistics that clearly demonstrate LGBTQ community members are just as likely, if not more so, to experience poverty in the United States. And we talk about violence and injustice in marginalized community in the U.S. and Canada. And to that end, the Human Rights Campaign recently released a report showing that 2020 was the most violent year on record with respect to violence against transgender people, and 2021 is trending to be even worse. 
like gender and sexuality, discrimination and socioeconomic factors also exist along a spectrum. It's why I felt it was important to introduce this language. As you know, I treat UNFTR as almost a podcast curriculum with building blocks laid to better understand ourselves in the system we designed, and it's hard to break something down if you don't understand how it's built. And so this is dedicated to those who have done the work and taken the pain to get to this point. To David, who taught me to meet people where they are. To the unfuckers who supported us every step of the way and joined in this unfucking undertaking to right some wrongs and help create a better shared language. To the unfuckers who told us we would like a show on this topic. And personally, it's dedicated to Jeff and Evan, two people in my life who have transitioned. I see you and I love you. And so let's end with a small but meaningful expression of our Tyson principle. And that's what we can do. Add your pronouns to your email signature and your social media profiles. Add it to your Zoom and Google Hangouts identity at work. Quietly invite the conversation when you have the opportunity. Familiarize yourself with the differences between identity and expression, biology and sexuality. Read, learn, and advocate. The more we participate in holding up a new language, and the more space we give community members to work through this process to live their truths, the easier it will be for us to build a policy framework that goes beyond tolerance and acceptance, to build one that just is. My name is Max. My pronouns are he, him. Wherever you are, I'll meet you there. Here endeth the discussion. All right. Hey, 99. Hi, Max. What's going on? Oh, you know, (laughs) just digesting all that language. Well, before we get to that language and show notes, let's put our book love up top since we did have a couple of good resources. The one again was The Deviant's War by Eric Cervini. That just came out last year. And again, it's written in narrative historical form. And it's it's an awesome book. I, I highly recommend it. And the other one was, again, 10 years old. But it was a pretty good framework for the discussion of the criminalization of LGBTQ people in the United States. It's called Queer Injustice. That one's by Joey Mogul, Andrea Ritchie, and Kay Whitlock. So that's our book club for this week. And 99 and I had a a little different idea about pod love this week. We'd actually like to hear from you, unfuckers, if you are a part of the community or if you are an ally to the community, any podcast that you like that we can promote on this show uh, that you think do a really good job of, you know, kind of unpacking issues and speaking truth in uh, that community. So send us an email at unftrpod at gmail to let us know what you're listening to, and we'll put that in pod love next week. So before we get into show notes today, I wanted to have a quick discussion with 99. I want to do out loud what we've been doing behind the scenes, because we had more discussion about this episode than probably any other episode that we've put together. Would you agree? I say that's fair. In a positive way, in a really positive light, like there were so many storylines that we could have followed, and that's what we were kind of banning about, because this really originated with requests from unfuckers who came to us and said, we'd love for you to unfuck an LGBTQ episode. And then the question became, well, what does that mean? What is our role to play? So I want to be very open and honest that I felt very uncomfortable putting something together from the outside because it, it wasn't necessarily something that I brought an experience to that I felt like I had agency in this conversation to bring to light. 
So I wanted to make it more research-based and language-based and try to, you know, open that big umbrella, cast that wide net to try and get more people into this, to join into where I am on this journey, which is sort of a selfish way to approach this thing. How do you feel now that we've kind of wrapped this up and we've gone back and forth? How do you feel about the way that the episode was presented? Like you said, there are definitely a few approaches that we could have taken. And I do think that this was safe is the wrong word, but I think it was the respectful way to go where we have heard from listeners who identify with you, who identify as where you are in your journey, in your age bracket even. I mean, we know rough demographics of our listenership. It was a smart move to kind of appeal to that group. Now it opens the door for us to bring the LGBTQ community into further conversations. Getting back into the idea that it was safe, I agree. It was totally safe. In fact, there were a number of things that you cut out along the way where you're like, come on, man, you you can do better than that. <laughs> it just shows you that, you know, no matter where you are, there's always some things to learn. But the idea that it was safe is something I want to hang on. The idea of it being safe and the idea of agency because, you know, what right do I have to comment, let's say, doing an episode on on Iran or, you know, just because I went to Cuba, does that mean that I could really do an episode on Cuba? But it was easier to do that because it was through the lens of the military industrial complex, through the lens of our diplomatic ties, and it was through the lens of American policy. So there was a storyline here that we could have done this through the lens of policy as it relates to the LGBTQ community, right? We could have picked a lane and we could have just, for example, we could have just stayed on the criminal justice system and the criminalization of non-heteronormative behavior, which is something that we had a long discussion about, even calling it non-heteronormative because then that places heteronormative behavior at the center. So nuanced. And it was that type of nuance that put me back to the framework of, you know what, I'm not far enough along with this language to be able to express something even nuanced enough about socioeconomic issues or policy. And I really just wanted to have this conversation about language so that we could all kind of drive together. I don't think any of the feedback will be negative, maybe just a different opinion. And that's where I have to land with with all of this and a lot of the issues we tackle is that everybody has a different attachment to their identity, to their language. I was reading something the other day about the usage of the word Latinx and Mm -hmm. so many, so many people like it seems like the vast majority of people hate it. But then there are people who are like, no, this covers me. This is who I am. And I can't make the call on that. My inclination is always to go more inclusive. So I, that's who I am. And that's part of the conversations we had here as well, because I just want to make sure that I can include as many people as possible. But sometimes inclusion can be exclusion, which is a weird concept. Right. Similar to the Latinx experience I was telling you about a discussion that I was watching where it was a group of black entertainers and thought leaders that were talking about the term BIPOC. And it was basically like, who made this up? Where did this come from? I I don't remember being consulted on this. And so you never know where different parts of the community are in their journey. So you have those of us on the spectrum that are trying to catch up to what has already kind of been done. And there's new language being explored and and new thoughts being explored related to it that are moving way beyond where we are. And that's why I think I I just came back to this idea of level set anyway. Yeah. My closing thought is as someone in this space, I'm very invested in it and I care a lot about it. Sometimes it can be a level of ally fatigue of wanting to do the right thing for everybody all the time. But I think it's just good to say to our unfuckers who might feel a similar way and similar to what we said to P. Slippery last week, that was more like news fatigue or issue fatigue. But this is more like, 
I can't make a difference necessarily by myself, but I want to be a good ally. But it's okay to kind of just learn for a little bit and then arrive when you can. I love that. It didn't escape me that, you know, you very subtly called me old again. Yeah. So moving on into show notes, coffee donations. We had a really kind of extraordinary week with coffee donations and coffee purchases. Meeting Harry and Amy was really meaningful. You expressed that obviously through support, which they're very grateful for and we are as well. And then on the donation side, the membership tiers that we introduced, I think was a great incentive for people to get more involved. And boy, did you ever. So thank you in advance to everybody. And let's run through a list of of some of the donations that we got here. Glenn became a member, as you heard up top, found us via Best of the Left. Best of the Left always, always pulling it through. But Glenn also found us through the Young Turks and David Pakman. So Glenn listens to a lot of shit and he's centered on us now. He's with us. He's, he's one of us. He's over here now. Chad Z bought us a coffee. Thank you for that, Chad. The anti-theist Marxist became a member. Bobby McDee. Bobby McDee! We got some news about Bobby McDee coming up. Pretty cool stuff. Now, Latoska S., purchased two coffees and met somebody through somebody who mentioned the show to her. And then she took a listen to it and said, this is awesome. So thank you for that. Josh Y became a member and said, give Washington DC statehood. I couldn't agree more. Let's just get rid of fucking Florida and bring Washington DC into the mix. Now, Naruva became a member and said, well, 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 what an interesting timing to bring up this resurgence of submarines. I'm going to skip over some of this other stuff that Naruva put in here and just give you the fellow down under uh, going full crocodile Dundee and pulling out. You call that a cock? It's not a cock. This is a cock. I I only said this because Naruva, like every other fucking Aussie member that we have, every other down under fucker sent like a long, really, really funny and very profane email to us. And I love that down under fuckers someday. We'll bring that. We got to bring the show down there and just meet all of you because you're nuts. Flair became a member. Oh, said, you give me hope. Keep it up. 99 rocks. I have a fan. Oh, I know. You should have fans. You have a lot of fans. I know, but Flair didn't mention anybody else. No. Uh, sorry, man. Flair's favorite. I don't care. No. Ugh, I can't. I can't. No, keep... you're fucked. He's uh, going to pull that apart. No. He's going to be in a song. Uh, I don't care. He gets plenty of love. He has a Twitter. People tweet him. Yeah, that's true, too. So, like, he's known. Yeah, exactly. He's known. He could be found. Yeah. And he so, does get a lot of love. Yeah. So let me have this one. Let you me have it. Flair. You got it. Thank Flair, you. 99? Call me. 99? Flair. Shiva's now a member, said loves this podcast. Love the host's dark humor, knowledge, and analysis. Linda L. Oh, man. Linda bought five coffees, said love the show. James in Canada bought two coffees, said thanks for the show. Andy L. bought three coffees, found us on Best of the Left. As fucking usual, Best of the Left, just crushing it for us as always. God, I love them. Yet you call their fans. Bottle fuckers. Uh, yeah, so. B-O-T-L. They might end. <laughs> You know, not good. A bottle fucker. Well, I mean, the implication p- is that they fuck bottles. Pitch fucker is any better? Pitchfork <sighs> economics. Pitch fuckers. Bottle I, fuckers. I feel like you can more easily fuck a bottle than a pitchfork. Well, mm, never mind. I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along, Aaron C purchased ten coffees. Said I must be a masochist. Maria from Puerto Rico. We love Maria. Said I'll support your fucking show. Why did she spell it like folk queen? She spelled it fucking show. She said that's fucking in Spanglish. Not <laughs> oh, that's so great. I didn't right read the there. rest of it. Sorry. Okay, so Maria from Puerto Rico became a member, said I'll support your fucking show. Keep buying your folk queen coffee too. That's fucking in Spanglish. I love it. 
I cannot wait for the bean coffee. That's coming very, very, very soon. Corey S. became a member, said best podcast out there. Sean purchased a coffee. Sean's a pitch fucker. Came from Pitchfork Economics. Sean, how do you feel about that? Noah sad. Noah said? I couldn't figure this one out, so I left Thank it God. for you. Noah said, Peter purchased five coffees. Thank you, Noah said, Peter. And Edric bought five coffees. Fucking awesome podcast. Now, moving on. A couple of comments from Facebook. Andrew I loved the last two episodes. Great idea to talk about the other 9-11. Kyle C., as always, you blew my mind with the climate change episode. What up, Kyle? Taylor B., Taylor's favorite podcast, FMF. We're not doing enough FMF lately, by the way. We need to really start sticking it back to Uncle Melty. Ricky M. said this podcast is so good, had to listen to it twice. Cool. David K., great episode. Appreciate the content. And Nettie, oh, Nettie. Oh, that's right. Nettie tagged us in a picture repping the UNFTR shirt. And I think she was in there with her sisters. Yeah. Over on Twitter, we got the Midwest Monster. What's up, Midwest Monster? Check out this and previous episode on climate change. Wild that Bob. What's up, Knudsen? Max Manny Faces 99 is always listening to the bonus with Amy and Chief Wallace of the Uncachog Nation. Now, Fireman226 said, I love you at FTR. And in response to that, Darren Slow Motion said, that must mean you're open-minded and striving to learn. At Dondane, spreading love and tagging reps Elon Omar and AOC, the crazy Watson said, I love your work. Keep enlightening us, fuckers. At Randomizer tweeted about the Canada election. At Tripod McGee sent us an awesome photo of him set up with his <gasps> tripod at a football game. What's up, Tripod? Good to see you, man. Chaotic Socialist said, I fucking love this podcast. Oh, on Instagram, April FJ sent a photo of the UNFYA. That's Unfuck Your Afternoon Coffee Brewing and said, TYT sent me your way about six months ago. Then I sent my brother and we both love this podcast. And now I can say that I love the coffee, too. It's goddamn good coffee, isn't it? Astro Vandalism said halfway through the newest episode right now and had to take a break. Oh, boy, this one's depressing. Hoping for a light at the end of the tunnel. Ugh. Uh. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. My bad. Now, P. Slippery. Max finally had the opportunity to listen to last Saturday's show and wanted to let you know I appreciate your thoughts. And I take your words to heart. Hopefully other people who listen will also take notes. We were talking to P. Slippery about dialing it back, taking a little break having a little bit of fun, taking a deep breath. So you know what? Uh, I hope P. Slippery's not even listening to this right now. So there. Chad Z, who you know from before. Max Manny 99 unfucking real how good your podcast is. Alex S., original Nettie Hugger. Alex is the one that gave us the strategic coordinates for Nettie's location. We appreciate that, Alex. Thanks for reaching out to us. Give Nettie a hug again for us. And um, Lex C., holy fuck, literally the first podcast I ever made it past the first episode. Thank you. Also said, huh, my voice acting skills are really damn good. How about that, 99? Shall we do your Trump impression? Okay, very good. Barbie is back. Hey, Max, you're on fucking of the climate industrial complex. It was an aha moment for me. Cool. Lara E. Hey, Lara. I bought some coffees last week, but it's been a bit since I sent you a note of appreciation. You might be the smartest person I've ever heard. Oh, God, I'm not. You kill it every episode. And Jay Boogers. Now, Jay Boogers said, uh, and this is an important one. I want to read this out. So uh, bear with us. I've been listening to the podcast since episode four. Deeply enjoyed it. I'm writing to you today both as a fan and concerned listener. Every once in a while, I've had to hold my nose at a few episodes engaging in liberal apologia. So all that being said, listening to the Building the Climate Industrial Complex yesterday, I have to say, kept me up all night thinking. The position taken that we should further fund the military industrial complex in order to combat climate change while draping ourselves in the flag to appease Republicans did not sit well with me. You said a lot of other stuff. It's a nice long email, but that's really kind of the essence of it right there. He said, again, I'm a longtime listener. Don't want to ascribe any malice to the episode, but I think you got it wrong. 
Uh, I did respond to Jay Boogers, but I want to respond to it here because if he's feeling it, then other people uh, probably felt it as well. So acting as an apologist for the establishment and pouring more money into the Department of Defense and the Pentagon was not the thrust of the episode. If anything, there was a sense of irony with that. However, the point I was trying to make that I didn't make perhaps clearly enough is that I do believe that they have been preparing for climate change, the inevitability of it, and not preparing to battle it. But they do have the capability to help us with wartime speed battle it if we were to reapportion their funds. So I did have a feeling after I wrapped the episode that I should have gone more into detail about how that might happen. For example, all of the defense contractors that did really, really well over the past 20 years, the amount of money cataloged for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan related to the surveillance state, related to our clandestine and dirty wars in other countries, in numerous other countries, the entire budget related to these efforts was in the range over the last 20 years of $30 trillion. That's a fucking astounding number, $30 trillion. Now, we know that the stated budget is $750 billion a year, going out for the next 10 years at a minimum and increasing marginally each year. That is also an astounding amount of money. The supposition here was we don't have time to put Raytheon out of business or Northrop Grumman out of business. They are going to get all the funding. That is the flow of funding. The establishment is the establishment for a reason. They're right there and we are out of fucking time. But if we change the rules of engagement and what their measure of success is, i.e. their measure of success is not fucking around in the North China Sea, Tony fucking Blinken, but it is with wartime efficiency and speed, building a resilient climate, resilient economy and infrastructure here in the United States and then anywhere that we touch abroad where we have a military base. So the idea is if we can completely retrofit all of our installations and convert to a clean energy economy using the money that's already fucking allocated, because that's what we're looking for is that amount of money. That's all we want. Think about $3.5 trillion infrastructure plans being fucking held up right now by Kirsten Cinema and Joe goddamn Manchin, right? We can't even get that money over a decade to fix the fucking infrastructure here. And there the military is going to be sitting on funding. That's the funding. It's already fucking there. So, yeah, that kept me up, too. And it really is, is guided by this idea that we're out of fucking time. And reviews. DeLorean Falcon. This podcast has helped give me the language, although less colorful than Max's, to speak to so many issues. Droll NSVT. I love this. And J. Mark North America. I love walking around listening to UNFTR. J. Mark, you must look crazy. <laughs> but thanks for the review. And El Dorado said, love the show. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Many Faces Media. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by me and distributed by me. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. And remember to read our essays on unftr.substack.com. It's always going to be free. See you later, 99. Bye.